Today, we're going to talk about what is the church. And we're going to answer questions like, what does it mean to be an invisible church or the visible church? What makes a church a church? What is the church supposed to do? What is church discipline about? What are the roles of elders and deacons? How should church government be structured? And what about women's roles in the church? So we're going to cover quite a bit of territory today. And the small chapter in your Christian Beliefs book actually covers 10 chapters of Dr. Grudem's systematic theology and over 300 pages. <laughs> but know there's deeper study out there if any of this intrigues you and you want to study it more. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one that established the church. This is not a man-made idea, but it's something you created and you wanted us to be a part of. Lord, ultimately, we want to love and serve the church, the body of Christ, the community that we participate in each, in each week. And Lord, we want to come alongside our pastors, our elders, our deacons, and all of those that serve in the church and encourage them and lift them up and love them well. And so give us wisdom as we learn what are our persuasions on some of these topics and how to live them out in our contexts. In your name we pray. Amen. So first I want to teach you what is the difference between conviction, persuasion, and opinion beliefs. Conviction level is a lot of what we've covered in this class of it is about salvation. It is non-negotiable. We are saved by faith. We are not saved by our works. Jesus has to be God. Jesus had to be holy. Jesus had to be resurrected. These are all what's called conviction level beliefs. You would or should be willing to die for these beliefs and never deny them. And to deny them would mean you're not a Christian. Okay? That is your conviction level. Now, persuasion are things that, in a sense, help us create denominations because we have different persuasions on certain topics. Sometimes churches are, are very heavy on what's their view on end times, or they're very heavy on, you think of charismatic backgrounds and, and where you speak in tongues or not, or how you speak in tongues, things like that. Uh, but persuasion level also fits everything we're talking about today. How your church is governed, roles that are played out in your church. Now, some people would say, oh no, they are conviction level. It is a sin if you believe this or that. But truly, because it is not related to your salvation, these are called persuasion level topics. And we should be able in the body of Christ to agree to disagree and still be very close in fellowship because the gospel is what connects us, not if we hold differences in views in church, in church government. Opinion level beliefs are things that in your own walk with God, in your own study of scripture, in your own context of walking with the Holy Spirit, you feel convicted in yourself to live out something in a certain way. But there is no law in the Bible that says you should hold another Christian accountable to that. So for example, I hold a conviction that if we were in a group and there was alcohol in the group, I would choose not to drink it, even though it's not a sin for me to drink alcohol in the Bible, because I just don't want to cause anyone to stumble or lose respect by anyone if I were to have alcohol. So I would choose as a person that's an influencer, leader, teacher, whatever, to not consume alcohol uh, around other people. That does not mean that it is wrong if you know somebody else that's a teacher, leader, influencer, pastor that would have alcohol. It is my personal persuasion of how I live, but I call it my opinion of between me and the Lord, but I'm not going to hold you accountable to that. Other people, their example might be, oh, the world is it's going to hell in a handbasket, so we all should be homeschooling our kids, or we all should be going to Christian school, or we all, and, and we cannot, that is your opinion for you and your family and how your family walks with the Lord. So we want to be careful to, when we have these conversations, make sure we put them in the right category because it determines how adamant we are that other people agree with us or not versus we can agree to disagree and that's no problem because it's not a salvation topic. So we are talking on persuasion level. We are going to show you verses today and other sides can show you other verses today. And so it really is a, you got to figure out between you and the Lord where you're going to move forward. That's how we're going to proceed with this. So we're going to start with what is the church? We can define the church as a community of all true believers for all time. 
Have you thought about that? All true believers for all time is the church. The church is made up of all men and all women who have been, who are, or whoever will be in the future, true believers of Jesus. Jesus said that he would build his church by calling people to himself in Matthew 16, 18. So it is his church, not our church. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This way we know the church is a group of people, not a building, because he doesn't give himself up for a building. He gives himself up for people. The church here is used to apply to all of those who Christ died to redeem. That includes believers from all time. The New Testament and Old Testament are all part of the church. Just as the whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament was assembled together to worship God, Jesus wants Christians to assemble together to worship today. The word church is both local and universal. Let me show you the different ways church is mentioned in the Bible. If you look at Romans 16.5, it's a small house church. But 1 Corinthians 1.2 talks about a church to an entire city. And then Acts 9.31 says there's a church in an entire region, a big area. And then Ephesians 5.25 says the church throughout the entire world. So the church can be used as easily as a small group in someone's home, or it could be talking about the entire church in the entire world through all time. A community of God's people at any level is rightly called a church. You don't need to reach a certain number to then be considered a church. So let's talk about what's an invisible versus visible church. You've heard me mention that maybe some in previous discussions, but the invisible church is what is the true church. Because we cannot see the spiritual conditions of people's hearts, the true church in its spiritual reality as fellowship of all genuine believers is invisible. So the true church is invisible. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows who are his. So the invisible church, in a sense, is the church that God can see. It's what God can see. But the visible church is the church as Christians on earth see it. The visible church is what we can see. The people that come and go when we gather together. The visible church will contain genuine believers as well as others who do not truly believe or follow the claims of Jesus. The visible church is the group of people who come together each week to worship as a church and profess faith in Christ. The visible church will always include unbelievers because we can't see everyone's hearts. So we're going to talk about what are other descriptions of the church in the New Testament. There's a lot of different metaphors for the church. And one of them is the church is seen as a family where each other is brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. We also see it as like a wedding. Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. Church members can also be referred to as one body, such as in 1 Corinthians 12. But then it changes, and the church can also be referred to as a body with Christ as the head, holding the rest of the body together and equipping the body to work. So whether you're in 1 Corinthians 13 or Ephesians 4, which are both metaphors of the body, they mean different things. So he gives you different analogies. Now, there's also analogies like the church is called the new temple, which we are also called the new temple, right? We are the temple where the Holy Spirit resides. We are called a holy priesthood. We are branches on a vine. We are considered an olive tree. And we are also considered a field of crops. So what we want to be careful for when we think about all of these metaphors for the church is don't just stick with one. Like it's most common often to hear, we are one body with different parts, right? And we all need to work together in unity. Great, and we need to talk about that. But it's really good to keep thinking about what are the other metaphors of the church? Why are they important? How are we living out that metaphor as the body of Christ? Now, many New Testament verses in Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter explain the church 
as a new Israel or the people of God. So we're going to talk about that briefly. Hebrews 8 provides a strong argument for seeing the church as the recipient and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel. Again, this is a persuasion level topic. Some people would say only Israel is receiving these promises. And some people say, no, the body of Christ has been grafted in and we now receive these promises. But Grudem is proposing that we have been grafted in and receive the same promises that Israel was being promised. So this is his argument. Peter frequently speaks of New Testament Christians in terms of Old Testament imagery and the promises given to the Jews. You'll see this if you want to write this down, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And here's some things that he says in this passage. Peter says that God has bestowed on the church almost all the blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God is no longer the temple because Christians are the new temple of God. The priesthood, able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God, is no longer descended from Aaron, for Christians are now considered the royal priesthood, and we have direct access to God's throne. God's chosen people are now the true chosen race, according to verse 9 of 1 Peter 2. The nation blessed by God is no longer said to be the nation of Israel, for Christians are now God's true holy nation, according to verse 9. And then the people of Israel are no longer said to be the people of God, for Christians, both Jews and Gentile Christians, are now God's people who have received mercy, according to verse 10. Moreover, Peter takes these quotations from contexts in the Old Testament that repeatedly warn God will reject his people who persist in rebellion against him and who reject the precious cornerstone that he has established. What further statement could be needed in order for us to say with assurance that the church has now become the true Israel of God and will receive all the blessings promised in the Old Testament? Now, Paul, he says in Romans 9, 6 through 8, not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. So this is a case that not all Jews are saved just because they're Jews. It goes on, it says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the church is now God's chosen people. And then Paul continues to write in Ephesians 2.12 to Gentile believers that they were formerly alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I think that's one of the most convincing arguments of this persuasive conversation because it's saying you once it was once the Israelites and now it's also the Gentiles. So when Gentiles were brought into the church, Jews and Gentiles were united into one body by their faith in Christ. Okay, so next question is what makes a church a church? Though many groups call themselves a church, there are actually true churches and false churches. And this was a really big discussion during the Reformation with Martin Luther. And this question came up, how can we recognize a true church? And is the Catholic Church true? Because remember, that is when they branched off of the one church, which was the Catholic Church, which was called the true church. So Catholics believe that the true church descended from Peter and the apostles, but that is not the view of Protestants. And all of us here today are Protestants. So the point of the Reformation was to call out false teachings in the Catholic Church. And there is a great section in Grudem's Systematic Theology. For those of you who have the book, it's pages 1080 to 1089. It's nine pages that give a list of 13 errors in the Catholic Church according to Scripture and why they are unbiblical. So it gives a really clear presentation of the 13 things that would be non-Protestant that Catholics engage in. Now, there are false churches that are clearly false churches, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
which is Mormons, and Jehovah Witness. The reason these are false churches is they do not teach the gospel message of salvation by faith alone. So if you know a church that includes good works, it would not be considered a true church because it is not teaching the true gospel. That's what makes a church true or not. Is it teaching the true gospel? Just because a group meets does not make them a true church biblically. So the reformers established two marks of a true church. The first one was correct preaching from the Bible and correct administration of the sacraments. And the Reformation only included two sacraments, which was baptism and the Lord's Supper. So they care about how you teach the word and they care about how you administer baptism and the Lord's Supper to define if you are a true church. That's how the Reformation did it. And this was established mainly to show how they were different than Catholicism. And Catholics were seeing that saving grace came from participating in these sacraments. You had to be baptized. You had to take the Lord's Supper in order to receive this grace. And so the Protestants saw that this was a work done to receive your salvation, not free grace given to you by faith. And Grudman is very careful to say, we are not saying the Catholic Church is not a true church. It's not the true church. It, we're not saying it's not a true church because the Catholic Church all around the world is very diverse. And so there are some parishes that actually teach the gospel is by faith alone. And then there are some parishes that say you have to do these sacraments in order to be saved. So it's very unclear because the Catholic Church has been around for so long and is in all over the world, we can't just say, oh, it is a false church. We it would be just not true. But there are, like we said, those 13 errors that we as Protestants would say, well, we don't agree with these teachings of the Catholic Church. But there are actual Protestant churches that are false churches today, especially liberal churches that are affirming things contrary to scripture or actually saying scripture is not authoritative, not infallible. If they say there are problems with the word of God, that, that it is questionable, that it's full of mistakes, you cannot call that a true church because you cannot trust what theology they will create out of a Bible they believe is imperfect. If you had to move somewhere or you decided to look for another church, you need to go to their statement of faith and make sure they believe the Bible is infallible and that they believe there are no mistakes in the Bible. That is crucial to make sure you can trust what is being taught in a church that you attend. A way to think of your own church is on a continuum. Okay, so instead of thinking, oh, is my church a true church or a false church? What, what Grudem proposes is our churches could be either more pure or less pure. So we're gonna talk about how would you evaluate if your personal church was more pure or less pure? The purity of a church is its degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. So here's some signs of a pure church, okay? If you wanted to evaluate your own church or churches you've been a part of, they should teach biblical doctrine or right teaching from the word. Second, they would need to have a proper use of sacraments or the ordinances, okay, and baptism and the Lord's Supper. They should have a right use of church discipline. Do you notice if your church is doing church discipline? They should have genuine worship, effective prayer, effective witness. Are they witnessing out to the community? Effective fellowship. Do people feel like they could be accepted and belong? They need to have a biblical church government. They need to have spiritual power in their ministry. Do you see the Holy Spirit working in the ministries that they have? There needs to be personal holiness in the life of its members, especially those that are serving and in leadership. And then there needs to be care for the poor and a love for Christ. So these are all different things you could kind of assess. How does my church do on these areas? A church might not be strong in all of these areas, but they're good to assess to see how we can continue to strive to be pure and more like how Jesus wants the church to be. So what is the church supposed to do? That's the next question. The church is supposed to minister to God, first of all, then minister to its members, and then to the world. 
Are we ministering to God when we get together or is it always all about us? And then is it ministering to the people that come and gather together? And then are we only caring about ourselves or are we caring about the world? So we minister to God through worship. Worship, though, is not just preparation for something else. I think a lot of times we're like, oh, I got to worship to get my heart ready to hear the word. No, worship is its own thing because we want to honor God, be in his presence, and focus on him. So it's not just a preparation for the next thing of the agenda. It is a fulfillment of a major purpose of the church whose members were created to live in the praise of God's glory, according to Ephesians 1.12. The church ministers then to its members by building them up so that the church can present everyone mature in Christ. If you have a church that is afraid to speak truth, to help people pursue holiness, to help them purge sin out of their life, then this would not be a church that is really ministering to its members to help them to become mature in Christ. This means we need to have discipleship and training elements in the church. We need to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We need to encourage unity of the faith and knowledge of uh, the Son of God. And then the church is then to minister to the world. Think about it. If we're maturing, if we're growing, we will be able to be effective ministers to the world through sharing the gospel to all people in word and deed. We're called to make disciples of all nations. It's important to note that the church does not and should not rule over the state or country. So this is a very interesting thing too, because you see a lot of countries where what the Catholic church used to reign or the church of England or things like that. And it's real important to see that actually biblically, Jesus supported a separation of church and state. The authority of the church and that of the state belong in kind of different spheres, okay? And Jesus, declared this in Matthew 22, 21. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. He didn't say, you know, forget Caesar, ignore Caesar, but we're also supposed to give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. But it also means there's two different authorities that we're trying to figure out how to live under. And so ideally, both the church and the state should respect the authority that each other was given. They're given different authority. Now, I'm studying Leviticus right now, as some of you are, and if you're reading through the Bible in a year. And it's interesting because Leviticus has civil laws and moral laws, and there's a third one, ceremonial laws. Thank you. Okay, so ceremonial are done with because Jesus died. We keep the moral laws, but not maybe the consequences like Everybody was kind of put to death for like every single thing in Leviticus. We don't do that anymore, but we still hold to that it's morally wrong to do certain things. The civil laws changed. So there were certain laws that Israel had to obey civilly because of the context they were in. But once there started to be other nations, those civil laws went away as an expectation for every nation because each nation had to figure out their own civil laws. And so that's what we need to do is we need to respect how does our country need to figure out their civil laws. Now, what does that mean to us as, as Christians? We have a right to attempt to persuade, not demand the government, but to persuade to make laws that we believe are biblically honoring. So some of those would be protecting families. You might not think of this, but protecting property, because if you don't have property, you will not be able to ever get out of poverty. That's seen all over the world. And then to protect the lives of human beings, whether that's preborn or the elderly or anything in between. Those are some principles that Christians should be influencing in our government based on our morals. All right, so the next one is what is the purpose of church discipline? You may or may not have thought of this. You may or not have ever participated in this. I think it's becoming more and more foreign in our culture in America to encourage church discipline, but it is biblical. And so we need to think about, despite our culture, despite what's comfortable or not, how should we and our churches be living out church discipline biblically? The goal of church discipline is to restore and reconcile a believer who is going astray from God or the church. So the goal is restoration 
and reconciliation, not damnation, you know, not, and, and there is a point where it, it says, you know, at some point you need to move them out of the church because they're unrepentant, they're causing problems, but still the heart behind it is we would love for you to be restored and reconciled. So the church is actually acting in love to try to bring this person back into right fellowship and rescue them from destructive patterns of life. We are to restore in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1 says, and to bring back a sinner from his wandering, James 5.20 says. So part of the reason church discipline is necessary is actually to keep sin from spreading to others. We don't want what seems acceptable to go to keep happening. And that's why we discipline children, right? We want them to not do that again or not let a sibling or someone else see that that's acceptable. And so we do need to have certain discipline within the church. Okay, we engage in discipline to protect the purity of the church so that Christ will not be dishonored. So two loving things. We want the person to be reconciled to God and we want God to not be dishonored. That is why we need to engage in church discipline. So then you might ask, well, what sins require church discipline, <laughs> right? Well, the, the typical passage about this is Matthew 18, 15 through 20. That's where you would go to understand the structure of how to do this. And it says that if a situation involving a personal sin, personal sin against someone else cannot be resolved in private or in a small group meeting, then the matter needs to be brought to the church. How interesting. Do you know very many people that have a personal sin against someone from the church and it just stays unreconciled? Even in marriages, you think about that. This, the church is meant to help marriages where you get stuck, you feel unreconciled, you can bring yourself to the church and the church can help you hear one another, understand one another, come to reconciliation so that there's not divorce, so that even after adultery, maybe it can be re-put together or maybe not. We don't know. But so often, we just think, oh, someone sinned against me. I'm just going to, in today's terminology, I'm going to ghost them, right? I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to ignore them. I'll switch churches because of them. And so we don't want to do that. The New Testament does not contain any specific limitations on the kinds of sins that should be subject to church discipline. But it does give a few examples in the New Testament, such as if you're being divisive, if there's incest, get this, laziness needs to be confronted by the church, refusing to work, same idea. And then it literally says, use church discipline if you're disobeying things that Paul says, which is interesting because Paul wrote a whole lot. So it's kind of like, okay, whatever Paul wrote, we need to hold each other accountable to. Definitely blasphemy and then teaching heretical doctrine needs to be brought to the church. Now, if a situation cannot be resolved individually, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And the church will assemble to hear the facts of the case and come to a decision. It is interesting. That passage does say the church. It doesn't say the pastor. It doesn't say the elder board. Just interesting that God is giving us as the entire church authority to hear a case and make a decision on it. But that's just kind of not how it's run. So this is a delicate matter. It takes prayer. But again, the heart, we want to protect the church. We want to help the person to be reconciled. And I mean, there are pastors that have said, yeah, I was in an inappropriate relationship. I'm going to step down, but I'd still like to be a part of this body if you would have me, but I'm not going to like, and they're loved on and they're cared for, but they know they've lost some ability to influence, you know? And so that's a beautiful way of, Hey, you know, how many people that are sitting in the pews are in sexual immorality, you know? So we want to give grace, but also not allow them to lead for a season, you know? Yeah, this definitely takes some discernment. In, in figuring this out, but we have to remember what is the heart behind it? Reconciliation, restoration, protecting the church, not allowing sin to fester, and honoring God. All right, well, we're gonna move on to just the next topic. What about church government? So church government, there's different examples and views in the Bible and different denominations play out church government differently. So there's many different forms of church government. It is not a major doctrine. Each form of church government has weaknesses and strengths, and so evangelicals can agree to disagree on this topic and how the government works in your church. But you're going to hear how Grudem's, what his persuasion is of this. 
There are church officers who have been publicly recognized and have the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Okay, so who are these public offices? That would be elders, deacons, pastors, and normally you include church treasurers because they have a lot of say in where the money's going in the church. So elders, deacons, pastors, and church treasurers. Other people exercise other gifts in the church, like Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, but they do not have an office because they do not need formal recognition for their gifts to function. And just to know one church office that we would say does not exist today is apostle. We don't believe that's an office anymore. Apostles had a unique kind of authority in the early church. They would speak and write the words that were literally called the words of God. And it was in an absolute sense. So they became with the scriptures we have today in the New Testament. So this role of apostle was limited to the first century because to be an apostle, you actually had to see Jesus resurrected. So if you didn't see Jesus and his resurrection, you were not commissioned to be an apostle. According to Grudem, we can establish there were about 15 apostles. It's not like there were that many, right? Even with new churches started, no one became apostles. So you had the 11 disciples, not 12 because of Judas, right? So you had the 11 disciples are apostles, plus Matthias, who they took on after Judas took his life. And then Barnabas and Paul are considered apostles who saw Jesus. And James, his brother, is considered an apostle. That's why he was allowed to write the book of James. And what we can tell is after Paul, no one else was made an apostle. And we know he saw Jesus because Jesus came to him on that road to Damascus. So there were 15 apostles in all, and then we're done with the era of apostles. All right, so we're going to talk about what is an elder next, and then we'll go to deacon and explain the differences. An elder within the Bible is understood as a pastor, overseer, or bishop. Those are kind of the three terms or words that would equate an elder. The pattern in all of the New Testament churches is that there was always more than one elder. Every single church, no matter what their size, would always have more than one elder. And understand, elder could also mean pastor, overseer, bishop. They appointed elders, plural, in Acts 14, 23, in every church. So Acts 14 gives us a model that every church had elders, and no matter how big the church, there was always more than one. It wasn't like, oh, there's only five of you. There's only going to be one elder or one pastor. There was always more than one person in this leadership. Paul's normal procedure was to establish a group of elders in each church shortly after the church began. So it's not like someone launches a church, starts a church as an individual pastor, and then five years later, let me choose my elders. It's like as you're starting a church, you want to safely have elders with you. That would be a great way to start a church according to the scriptures. No passage ever suggested or alluded to that there was only one elder based on the size of the church. Now, qualifications of an elder is 1 Timothy 3. It talks about how they need to be able to teach. So whether you're an elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, you should be able to get up front and teach if the person that's normally teaching is not available right? You need to be able and willing to say, I can go teach the body of Christ. Secondly, this is not expected of deacons. Deacons, that's a big difference. Deacons do not have to ever go up front and teach. So that's a big difference in the qualification of an elder versus a deacon. Elders need to be able to, at any moment, be able to go up and teach. So that means they got to know the word of God, right? They got to be able to teach the people. Whereas a deacon, not their expectation. Peter viewed elders as shepherds or pastors of the church, so they are going to care for the people, especially spiritually. The major role of elders in the New Testament was to govern the churches. I mean, you might know that kind of in your mind, but elders, which can include the pastor, would be the people that make the governing decisions of the church, not the deacons. Again, the deacons, when you, you have a deacon, is not normally a part of that listing or that expectation. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we see here the value of their leading and their preaching and teaching. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, that an elder or overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that is interesting. So in some cases, it's like saying to the elders and the pastor, what does your home, your home life can be kind of put on a little bit of a public display. How's your marriage going? How's it going raising your kids? Now, obviously, can I control if my children walk with Jesus? No, but here's maybe a parallel. Am I afraid to give my children discipline? Am I afraid to give my children truth? Am I passive in my home? Because then that would be the kind of leader you have when this might be the group that helps you with church discipline and church leadership and speaking truth in someone's life. So you want to see, are those qualities happening in his microcosm at home or is it not? Because then you might be raising up a passive leader that would not help make the hard decisions the church needs to make. So that's kind of the parallel of why that's important. Paul says in Titus 1.9, an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The qualification for elders is also found in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Here's some key qualifications. They are not to be a recent convert. That's not a thing for a deacon, but just for, for elders. They are not to be conceited. They must be well thought of by others, you know, respected, hospitable, self-controlled, not a drunkard. Doesn't say you're not allowed to drink, just so you know. It just says not a drunkard. Again, that would be your opinion level belief. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And then it says a husband of one wife. So then people often question, well, what does that mean? This was about focusing on not having more than one wife at a time back then because there was polygamy. So it does not mean a divorced man cannot be an elder and it does not mean a widowed man cannot be an elder. So elders can be, again, what's the story of the divorce? There's got to be a story. We got to know the whole story. But it does not mean just because you're no longer married that you cannot be an elder, okay? Because I've, I've seen some very, very mature single men that have never gotten married. And are they never going to be allowed to be an elder because they never, you know? So you want to be careful about that and not go legalistic on, on that. So here is Grudem's persuasion that Titus 1, 5 through 9 would assume that elders would be men. And that might not be true in every church, but Titus 1, 5 through 9 would create a persuasive argument that elders would be men. And Grudem explains that Jesus led by example when he established male leadership by appointing 12 male disciples. He could have, because he pushed against culture, right? You think about John 4, he went to that Samaritan woman. He, he hung out with someone that was an enemy. He hung out with a woman. That woman was the one that went and influenced her whole city, okay? So he is all about pushing cultural barriers, but he didn't say, I'm gonna have six men that are disciples and six women that are disciples for my 12 disciples as the apostles. He made all the apostles actually men. And we see this as Jesus is the head of the church, the way to think about it is he did not model equal access to all roles in the church. Not every role in the church has equal access to men and women. Even though he could have, he did not choose to model this. And he could have shown us that model from the beginning. And then what we see in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is a constant pattern of male leadership among God's people. So this would be Grudem's persuasion that this really is something that's more become a cultural phenomenon. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, let's go to what is a deacon. Deacon is a Greek word for servant. So they're not in a leadership role. They don't have to deal with that church discipline stuff. They don't have to teach in front of people. They are taking on servant roles in the church. Their qualifications are also 1 Timothy 3, but verses 8 through 13. And some of their qualifications are to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, so that's similar, and not greedy. And they're to be tested first to see, are you a faithful servant? Are you going to give up too fast? Are you going to keep persevering? And it does care about their spouse's conduct too, to not be slanderous, to be sober, and to be faithful. So that's interesting. Deacons are still seen in the church, even though they're servants. So their spouse matters. I think it's interesting because I think sometimes we're like, oh, this person's so great. 
let's just forget about the fact they have a spouse and what their spouse is like. But in certain roles in the church, it does matter what the husband and the wife, how they're both dealing spiritually, even if the wife's not the elder or the wife's not the deacon. Does that make sense? So it does matter because it's, you're seen as a unit. Deacons' responsibilities are often administrative or they're ministering to the physical needs of those in the church or the community who need help. So nowhere do deacons have ruling authority over the church's elders, nor are they expected to teach. And because of that, Grudem would say deacons can for sure be women. And we see that there were deaconesses in the Bible. And so he says, because this role is more of a servant role and you're ministering to people's needs, you're not teaching or having authority in this role of deacon, it's free reign for both genders within the church. That would be Grudem's view. Now, how are church offices chosen? This again is different for each church and how your government is formed. There's different ways. Church offices are either chosen by a higher authority, like a bishop, or leaders of a denomination might come in and say, here's your new pastor or leader, or it could be selected by the congregation. The congregation says, oh, we're gonna try out all these pastors and we're gonna choose them, or we're gonna vote on the elders and we're gonna choose them. So you wanna think, is, is your church led by the congregation chooses these people? Does your denomination give you these people? Or does your pastor have the authority to just decide who are the leaders in the church? Those are kind of the three ways that church government can go. Now, Acts 6.3 shows that the congregation picked out the deacons, those that served. Interesting. Normally, you, you, you see in our churches often, it's like, oh, well, here's the leader for this. They're going to choose the leaders for this. You know, but deacons, they're just servants. And even here, the congregation got to choose the deacons. So that's interesting. Acts 15.22 says that the whole church was part of the decision, along with the apostles and elders. And when the congregation chose the elders, which included the pastor, there is more accountability. So if the congregation feels like I get to choose my pastor and the elders, then the pastor and elders have to listen to the people which kind of sounds a little how we run in America, right? We vote our leaders in, and then they are supposed to make decisions for us. So that's kind of the benefit of, of that type of government. Grudem's persuasion is government works best when it has the consent of the people who are governed. If we feel like the pastor is going to move us toward the way we want to go. But the pastor should be included as an elder and should not have authority over them, would be Grudem's persuasion. That a pastor is considered an equal elder with the other elders as you're making decisions. It could get dangerous if one person has too much power, is kind of the point. So he could be seen as an equal, as an elder, with the elder board. And so the authority belongs to the entire group of elders, not just one person. Now his persuasion, I thought this was interesting. I don't know, I think, I don't know even if churches think about this, but he said the elder board should not consist of other associate pastors in the church. So it would include the lead pastor and elders, but if you have other, let's say you have a children's pastor, a small groups pastor, a worship pastor, they're not automatically in this group, okay? I had never thought of this before, but they're not put in that because they are actually subjected to the senior pastor. He hires and fires them. So if he hires and fires them, it would be weird to be in a decision-making body as his peer for other things. If elders and a pastor are voted in by the people, they're peers. But if the pastor hires and fires these people, they should not be up here in this group, would be Grudem's persuasion. And the reason, he says, is it affects with the interpersonal dynamics. It can make them awkward to disagree with the pastor when they're in these meetings because he can fire them, right? So they should not be in that meeting. Whereas a pastor can disagree with the elders, but he has no extra authority because they were all voted in by the church. All right, so here's the one that I want to talk about that's a little more sensitive, but Grudem's persuasion on what should women's roles look like in the church. Grudem's analysis of the scriptures is that the Bible does not permit women to function in the role of pastor or elder in the church. This has also been the conclusion of the vast majority of churches in various societies throughout history. And he takes it from 1 Timothy 1, 11 through 15, which states that women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And these two functions are carried out by elders, not deacons, and that's why women can be deacons. Paul's reasoning is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. There was a purpose in God's created order. 
God was giving Adam a leadership role. When Paul bases his argument on the order of creation, like Adam and Eve, it indicates that his command about women not teaching or having authority in the assembled congregation transcends culture and societies because it's before the fall. So there's not one example in the Bible of a woman doing the kind of congregational Bible teaching that's expected of pastors and elders in the New Testament church. But the Bible does encourage other kinds of teaching and speaking with women. So Acts 18, 26 shows we can teach the Bible in informal settings. And then we have Priscilla and Aquila, and they were leading a house church. It's a male and a female. And here's the story of what happened in Acts. They heard Apollos. Apollos was the one teaching in the synagogue, not Priscilla and Aquila, okay? So this man was teaching in the synagogue, but he was teaching something false. And so both the male and the female, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and explain the way of God to him more accurately. We are allowed to do that as women. We are allowed to pull somebody aside, even somebody that's teaching in a church, and propose to them, you are teaching something unbiblically. This is what Priscilla and Aquila did, and they did it together. And so women are allowed to hold both men and women accountable to true doctrine in the Bible, which is good, because that's why I wanted to get a master's in theology, right? Make sure I understand theology and I can respectfully have conversation with men about theology. But that does not mean I'm trying to be a pastor. So we are allowed to teach one another in such settings. So that's good. Go to your coffee shop, be in your small group, and you can dialogue theology with men. And that is fine and appropriate because you're not teaching the whole congregation. So this could be also like in a small group, Bible study, neighborhood group. Men and women are both contributing to the discussion and what the scripture means. That is fine as well. Grudem also affirmed, like, people, which I was like, is he writing just for me? He said, okay, what about women that write books <laughs> or have podcasts? I was like, wow, you wrote this when, you know? But he said, okay, they're writing books about God and the Bible, and those can be written by women because it's like you're having a private conversation again, just like you would with a man over coffee or in your small group. Written things, written books, or Bible studies are a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So a female author does not have to feel like she has teaching authority over an assembled congregation or group of men, but can teach and influence one-on-one -on -one in her writing. So I was like, okay, good, Whew, that's interesting. And then Titus 2, 3 through 5 also encourages women to teach women and to train them. So this can affirm us in why we can speak at conferences or retreats, because we want to teach other women. Now evangelism, interestingly, this is a role for both men and women and we're allowed to proclaim the gospel to any gender of any age. So you can go and proclaim the gospel to a man, to an older man. It doesn't matter because they are not in the congregation. They're not under you learning teaching in the body of Christ. So we are all called to share our faith. And it does not just have to be to women because we're speaking to non-Christians. And so we want to make sure we have the freedom to do that. So Grudem explains that women can hold other offices that are not teaching or ruling the entire congregation, such as, and see how he words it, youth minister, not youth pastor, children's ministry, counseling director, and so forth. So they can still have leadership roles in the church, but to clarify, they're not a pastor because that pastor role makes it sound like they have the authority to shepherd and, and lead and make executive decisions over the people. So what happened a few years ago was I was invited to speak at a service and this was my persuasion two years ago was, well, if my husband's okay with it and my pastor invited me to do it, he, the pastor gave me the topic. I wrote the whole topic and then I gave it to the pastor and he approved it. So what I assumed two years ago is I'm under the covering of both my husband and my pastor. So I'm still being submissive and being able to speak in front of a congregation. Does that make sense? That was my persuasion two years ago. Grudem put it a different way and it was like, okay, maybe I need to submit to this as someone that likes to teach. This is what he said. Grudem challenges this premise by saying that in essence, it would be saying that the male pastor or the male elders have the ability to give a woman permission to disobey that direct command in scripture. That was interesting to me. If, if our view is women shouldn't technically be teaching up there or shouldn't be pastors, why would a pastor have the authority to disregard that scripture even for a special occasion like that 
like Mother's Day, and let the woman then teach. That, that was interesting to me. He said, the Bible does not say preserve some kind of male authority in the congregation. It also doesn't say a woman cannot teach unless she is under the authority of the elders or the pastor. Rather, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. So kind of his persuasion is, why does a pastor get to choose to disregard that command for just this special situation, so to speak? So that, that, that was hard for me to wrestle with, but I felt like, okay, I'm going to stick to trainings. And if you want me to do a training, I personally still feel comfortable training co-ed audiences, but I don't want to go up and be considered teaching a sermon. But also before the Lord, we're on a journey, right? I don't feel like I sinned because I had a different persuasion at that time. And this goes back to when it's that opinion level belief. Like, so I had a persuasion then, and I had peace in my heart of how I made that decision. Now I've come, in my opinion, to more knowledge, or I learned something different, and that affected me in my opinion level of like, now I think I'd feel convicted personally if I said yes to give a sermon. Does that make sense? Like, but I don't feel like, oh, you were a sinner because you spoke up that, no. But now I feel like I now have a different, and now I feel, I feel, I might feel a little not so good doing it this time. His final persuasion on this about women is most of the views that prominent women in these roles have, are, this has arisen since 1966. The idea of women pastors, women in leadership has been since 1966. They were not seen before in church government or in the structure. And so pretty much it was happened during the feminist movement. And so kind of the question is, is why didn't anyone think of this before, centuries before? Why didn't it arise so soon after secular feminism gained widespread influence in society in the 1960s? So he just wants to put it out there that it's as feminism started that women started to become pastors and leaders in these roles in the church. And it has not been anywhere else in the history of the church. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this conversation. Lord, we just want to love you. We want to be faithful to the churches we're a part of. We want to live out of the spiritual gifts you've given us in a way that honors you and honors your word. And so, Lord, would you just continue to guide us how to take this conversation graciously to one another as we might have further questions or things to think about, Lord, but help us to learn what else we need to research, discover, learn about to better hold our own persuasions on these topics. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.